God's Word, I'd love for you to take it and turn to Mark chapter number 9. <clears throat> Mark chapter number 9 this morning. If you're willing and able, we will stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll begin our reading this morning in Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 42. And we'll read through verse number 50 um, for the context sake. But our actually, the exposition will, for the most part, end at verse number 48 and we'll tackle 49 and 50 next week. I do believe it's all one component. Let us read in uh, Mark chapter 9 and verse number 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. For their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of, heaven, the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Let's pray. God, again, we come to you just um, casting ourselves before you. Father, you have promised us that um, as virtue of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we can enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. So, Father, we're here. I pray that we're here not only as uh, me as an individual, but us as a church, just um, prayerfully expecting you to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Father. We don't come with any pretense other than just to meet with you. Um, Father, we, uh, with a great desire to see you work. Um, Father, I have plans of what I would love to see accomplished here, um, but we understand that you have greater plans. Father, so would you accomplish whatever it is that you desire, Father, with this word, with this sermon, Father? And would you help us to, to take it um, and receive it joyfully, Father? Would you help me um, to preach it joyfully, as hard as that may be? God, as we talk about sobering things, uh, Father, but would you, um, by your grace and by your spirit and by the power of your word, um, use this word, Father, to accomplish eternal, mighty, powerful, everlasting things in our hearts? Father, would you use this sermon to make us more like your son, Father? Would you use this text um, as a means, Father, to cast away sin in our lives and cling to Christ, to take off the old man and to put on the new? Father, would you use this text to bring sinners from death to life, Father, to give them new hearts and to accomplish mighty things in them, to write the law of God upon them, Lord? We, we pray and, Father, trust you to accomplish these things because we recognize that we can accomplish nothing this morning in and of ourselves we have no might we have no strength father we have no horses we have no chariots um, lord we have no pomp and we have no circumstance we have the word and we we are we are happy with that so father and if we're not would you help us um, and make us happy with that would you humble our hearts this morning that whatever the, the word of god says father we receive with the utmost joy simply because it's yours and, and if it's yours, Father, then it's good. And if it's good, Father, um, then we should embrace it um, with all of our 
hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our inner men. So God, go with us now and help us to be faithful um, to preach your word, but also help us to be faithful to receive it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. God bless you. come to the book of Mark, if you've not been with us, we come to the book of Mark simply because we've been in the book of Mark. Um, I didn't choose this sermon this morning providentially, the text chose me. <laughs> um, when you preach through a book, verse by verse, you take it all. You have to take it all. Um, and this is one of those sermons which is difficult to preach uh, because it's difficult to live. It's sobering um, to think about great eternal realities and difficult things. But at the same time, as we prayed, it's good. When we approach this text, we come to a text that is very difficult for some people. Um, it's difficult for a number of reasons. There's actually textual issues that as the pastor, preacher, teacher, or average Christian comes to that he has to deal with. But it's difficult uh, for most people, not for that reason, but because it has harsh realities, or at least seemingly harsh realities. My Lord introduces here to us in this text to his disciples, to those whom are most intimate to him. Um, he begins to talk about them, or he continues to talk about to them very um, difficult realities, um, but realities that we all um, inherently need to hear. Thus we come this morning. But for those of you that haven't been with us, and even those that, that, that have, um, we don't want to take a text and just pull it out of its context. Every text lives within an environment. And as I've studied this passage of Scripture um, in, in relationship and just went verse by verse and episode by episode, I'm convinced that this is born out of what preceded. All, even all of chapter number 9, I think, is interrelated. So just to remind you, um, the beginning of chapter 9 was born out of chapter 8. The Lord Jesus Christ is there with His disciples, and He explicitly lays out for the first time really the reality of the cross and His work, His passion, that which He is soon to embrace uh, his disciples don't receive it well. The Apostle Peter um, essentially rejects it. He rebukes the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus turns back and rebukes him and actually says, that's satanic. It's satanic because it's essentially the same argument that the devil made in the wilderness, that we can have a kingdom without a cross. Uh, but Jesus turns to Peter and his disciples often to reteach them that Jesus' great work Although he did many great things throughout his life and ministry over those 33 years, the greatest thing that he would do is, is when it would culminate upon the cross. So he's, he's now in the, the latter portion of Mark teaching them about that time and time again. Um, after he teaches them about that and after the rebuke, they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we refer to it as. He goes up on a mountain. Why? Luke tells us to pray. He brings three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, um, some of the most intimate crowd. Some that get uh, gleanings into things that the rest of the nine don't. Jesus Christ at that moment reveals His divine glory in such a way that I believe no other human being up to that point had seen. Um, they glean into uh, what, what seems to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, Elijah and Moses meet up there. Peter has some more dialogue with the Lord Jesus and he still doesn't understand. Um, anyway, some things happen. They come down off of the mountain. What do they find? They find a dispute going on with the rest of the disciples and the scribes. Um, a man has come with, um, with his boy. His boy is uh, demon-possessed. He's looking for Jesus. He's come to the end of himself. Nobody's been able to help. No physician, no person, no prophet, um, no exorcist has been able to, to do what he needed for his, his young boy. So he seeks out Jesus. No doubt he's heard of him. 
Um, but he can't find him. So he finds the next best thing, his disciples. Jesus is on the mount. His disciples are there. Um, but he's in utter despair again. Why? Because the disciples, he says, are not able. They don't have the strength to do um, what is, is needed. Jesus comes down and takes the position of teacher and he rebukes them, every one of them, all the disciples. And he rebukes them because of their faithlessness. Um, that all things are possible, he says, for those who have faith. It's no, it's no question of my ability. It's no question of my omnipotence and my power. It's a question of whether or not you have faith. And at that time, there's a spark of faith born in that man. And God does the miraculous and raises that boy from death to life. And we see uh, somewhat of a, a type and a picture of the resurrection that is to come, that which he just preached. Um, Jesus then teaches them more about his death, burial, and resurrection. And guess what? They still don't get it. Um, they don't understand. And I don't think some of them really wanted to understand. They wanted the kingdom without a cross. But Jesus is preeminently coming back and teaching them that that's not the case. That, that the exaltation must come through suffering. That glory must be preceded by a cross. Um, they leave that place, go through Galilee and Capernaum. Um, he's, he's, he's got his face toward Jerusalem now. Um, the, the last book of Mark is going to be consumed with the passion of Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. On the way, they don't talk about what Jesus just talked about, though they put that in the back of their mind and they begin to debate on who the greatest is. And you can imagine why that happened. Uh, as the three are on top of the Mount Transfiguration, they have preeminent place, seemingly, of stature that the other nine don't, and they come down, and those nine, they can't do anything. They can't accomplish it. Things that had been done before, they had casted out demons before under the authority of Christ, and now they are left um, impotent with no power and no ability. So you can imagine how the conversation drummed up. Who's the greatest within the kingdom of heaven? Um, surely, possibly Peter, James, and John or, or this or that. And you begin this dispute among the disciples. Jesus gets to where they're going. They get to where they're going. Jesus looks at them and asks them, what were you guys disputing? He knows the conversation's been had. He knows what's been going on in their minds. Um, uh, Luke or Matthew actually reports in their parallel account that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that pride filled them. He knew that arrogance was there as they began to debate who is the greatest. And Jesus, when He could have rebuked them once again, doesn't. Um, he takes the position of a rabbi. He sits and no doubt they gathered around His feet and He begins to teach them who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. And He tells them that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is those that are the least. Um, it's those that um, take upon the posture of a humble servant of which Jesus Christ one day will do, and He had been teaching them up to that moment, that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the one with the strongest arm, it's not the one with the most intellectual mind, it's not the philosopher, it's not the elite, it's not the wise, it's those who have so been humbled by the grace of God that it causes them to forfeit um, by their own will rights and stature and position and authority that may even be naturally right to them because of common grace, but to lay that aside and to bend and bow the knee to take a brother in Christ and wash his feet, to do that which most men will not do, to do that which us by nature will not often do. And it's, it's, it's very interesting that even our, 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 in our natural state, our, our, our acts of service are often self-serving. You know, I mean, how many times have you served in, in whatever capacity that it is um, it's seemingly humble, but at the same time, it's so that other men may see. That even in our natural state, our acts of service, which um, may take care of the homeless, the widows, um, this person and that person in need, are often nothing more than an exaltation of self so that others will bow down before us and say, what a great person. A true service is a humbleness of heart, um, not a humility of the hands, or not an act of service. 
And it's, it's truly born in the heart, which compels us to be um, that which Christ is and that which is truly godly. That God Himself takes the position of the servant and He says, those are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to pursue greatness, um, then, 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 then do that. Um, and then we enter into verse number 42 and He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones um, who believe in Me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Such an interesting phrase. Um, some would say that's harsh. Probably not the way you should preach. But the Lord Jesus Christ saw fit. As He looks at His children there, His sons in the faith, as a father um, often does with his boy, or his boys or his children, and just cuts through all of the fluff and just gets down to the point. Why? Because He's been with them for years and He knows what's in their heart and He knows what they need, need to hear. Um, so, so get the idea here. I think that it flows out of what's previously happened. They're arguing with one another, thinking one another is greatest, and there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus is, 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 is addressing the quarrel that's going on among them, and there's probably or possibly people within that crowd, even the twelve, um, that, are, that, that the others are laying a stumbling block before because of their pride. And he's urging them to have a love and a compassion for one another. And he's, and he's, and he's showing them the greatness and the, the gravity and the weight of their sin. You think that it's a minor thing, he's saying. You know, to argue about who the greatest is and to put yourself at the forefront. But, but, but anyone who lays a stumbling block before his brother, then you need to understand the weight and the gravity of what you're about to do. That it would be better for that person. And that's what he says. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe. Remember, the servant is the one who receives, who humbles himself, um, gives up authority, gives up stature, gives up right to receive those who are the social outcasts. Children of those days were the social outcasts, but it's also to serve, to give a cup of water in Christ's name, to receive someone because of Christ, because they belong to Christ and because you belong to Christ. Um, and that really, children are a, a, are, are a metaphor. While they should be received, they're a metaphor often for the, the children of God. And that's why he says, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. He's talking about believers here. He's talking about one another. He's talking about the interrelationship uh, between the disciples and between the brethren. And he's saying that if you, if you lay a stumbling block before your brother, know that it would be better for you that if you took a millstone, a stone that weighs tons, it comes from a word that literally means uh, a mule or a donkey that pulls, they would tread the grain and they would, they, they would crush it under a millstone. And this thing was unable to be lifted by any human, by any individual, by himself. It would be pulled by a mule to accomplish the task of agriculture. Um, and he says that it would be better for you if um, that thing was tied around your neck and you were drowned in the sea. That that's the gravity and the weight, he's saying, um, of, of causing your brother to sin or to stumble. Um... And He wants us to understand that this morning. But not only does He do that, He tells you that once sin enters into your life and you recognize it, that this is what you do with that. Verse number 43. So the dispute's going on. They're, they're, the, the idea, I think, is that they're laying stumbling blocks for one another why? through their pride and their arrogance. And if they're going to do that, then you need to know um, the gravity that it carries with and what your sin means in life and reality and time. And uh, he does that through an illustration. But then he doesn't just leave them there. He, says, he's, uh, he moves on to tell them what to do with that sin. In verse 43, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse number 45, If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Verse number 47, if your eye causes you to sin, plug it out. And you see the message that the Lord Jesus Christ is um, attempting to get across to His disciples and possibly and, and trying to get across to us. 2,000 years of church history, here we are with the text, and we're still made of the same stuff. We're still made of the same flesh. We're still made of the same blood. We're still having the same conversations, if not openly, in our own hearts. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? You know, who's the greatest preacher, pastor? Who's the greatest in the church? Who's the greatest in the family? The children um, often uh, go through this as, as well. Why? Because we're all prideful by nature. We're all born into this world arrogant and consumed with ourselves. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes and He teaches us that if that's what we are to pursue, then, then, then you need to know how grave it is. And you need to kill it. You need to cut it off. That when a Christian is birthed into the family of God and he's born again, Jesus Christ gives him a new heart. And in that new heart, the law of God is written upon it. And the law is summed up in these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. And that the Christian life um, is not a life of ease and prosperity and fluff and this and that. That, that the Christian life um, is a life of warfare. That's the message. You know, easy Christianity has done a tra tragic disservice to the people of God. It's taken away any sanctifying power um, to a difficult life and to a life of, of grace. It seemingly makes it incompatible um, that with a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That if there's any suffering, if there's any trials, if there's any difficulty, if there's any of this and any of that, um, that it's just because you don't have enough faith. And that if you live with enough faith, then you can walk on the mountains and you can have all that your heart ever desires. Um, and this is just, it's unbiblical, it's unscriptural. It, it destroys the doctrine of suffering. It, then it destroys the doctrine of exaltation. It destroys the cross. It destroys the doctrine of glory. And suffering must come through, and glory must come through suffering, and glory must come through a cross. And that's exactly what our Lord is saying here that the Christian life is not a bed of roses, it's not um, fields and and ponies, and it's not a circus, and it's not this or that, you know, that much of the Christian life is, is victorious, but it comes that the victory often comes through true warfare. That that's the message. That our Lord tells us that violent warfare is a fruit of saving divine grace, that it's not opposed to it. That when a person is born into the family of God, they are born as soldiers. Not only sons, you know, not only children, not only heirs of the Most High God with all the benefits of Christ and His kingdom, not only with an eternal reality, not only brothers and not only sisters and, and not only mothers and not only fathers and all of these glorious things that Christ makes us when we become Him, but one of those glorious things is a soldier in the fight. I mean, it is, it is a ra the, the radical allegiance of bearing the cross of Jesus Christ um, also brings us into a reality of warring with sin. Warring with the world, warring with the flesh, and warring with the devil. I think it was Spurgeon who said, in, in not so many words, that the most vicious and dangerous enemy um, is ourselves. That the world and the flesh definitely contribute to that. And each one brings their own thing to the table to shape the self. Um... But in, 
And we'll deal with those things when the time comes. The devil is a lion roaring about, seeking whom he may devour. The world has a culture of the spirit of the age that often shapes us in our depravity and in our wickedness and in our natural states. But at the end of the day, um, you don't go home with the world necessarily and you don't go home with the devil. You go home with yourself. And Jesus speaking pointedly to the disciples because of the sin that rests in their heart. And He teaches them the utter depravity and gravity of it. And then He teaches them what to do with it. That it's war. And this is what the, the, the New Testament is, 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 is explicit in teaching. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these things are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish, but... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Romans seven fourteen through 25, one of those verses says, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. We could go to Romans 6, we could go to Ephesians 6, we could go to a hundred other places in the New Testament that speaks of the, of the warfare that goes on, not only in the world and not only against the devil, um, but also within the, our own members, within the flesh. The flesh being that, that body, that, that man, not, not, not just hands, not just eyes, not just feet, but that which happens in our mind and that which happens in our, our heart. Thus, He calls attention to the hand, to the foot, to the eye. And He tells you that if it offends you, or it lays a stumbling block before you, or it causes you to lay a stumbling block before your brother, then understand the gravity of it. And cut it off. Cut it off. It's the hand, it's the eye, it's the foot of the flesh that corrupts and is corrupted. It is our outer man that manifests the fullness of the depravity of our inner man. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, what I'm not arguing this morning is that ultimately the problem is here. Um, but it's in here. So don't confuse the two. But at the end of the day, it's often the eyeball. It's often the hand, it's often the foot that carry us along the path or to engage in the practices or to, for, for evil to enter into our hearts um, as we see these things and the tools of the devil in the world um, shape us to, 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 and provoke us to certain types of sin, particularly those that cause us and others to stumble. The eyeball is a great gate to elicit much evil. Um, it was Eve's, Eve's eye that saw the fruit that tempted her um, with the pride of the eyes, to lust for it in some sense. Proverbs 27.20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. First John 2.17 says, The world's passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And it's First John 2.15 that there speaks of the pride of the eyes. Proverbs 6.17 says, Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. A proud look is one of, one of those. And that's why Job says in 31.1 that he's made a covenant with his eyes that he should not look upon a young woman. That's why Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set nothing before wicked before my eyes, nothing worthless, nothing vile. Um, I hate the work of those who fall away, he says. That's why Psalm 25.15 says, My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for He shall pluck my feet out of the net of the eye. Jesus recognizes can be a very dangerous member of the body. Not only that, the hand. Psalm 24.3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. The clean hands are a symbol of righteousness, a symbol of integrity, a symbol of a pure heart. This, of course, is in contrast to unclean hands, which are a symbol of the hands that can't approach the tabernacle, they can't approach the temple, they can't touch holy things. They're devoid of the presence of God. Why? Because those hands are quick to shed innocent blood. Those hands are quick to steal. Those hands are quick to touch the forbidden. Clearly, it represents a contrast of what the psalmist is speaking of. Not a pure heart, but an impure heart. Jesus says, if that's the case, cut it off. The foot throughout Scriptures, especially in the Proverbs and the Psalms, is a member that leads us also into the paths of unrighteousness. Isaiah 59.7 says, Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thought or thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Proverbs 6.18 says, A heart divides wicked plans, feet that are swift to running evil. Thus we are to be careful where our feet go, where our feet trod, where our feet are put in place, the path upon which they're laid. Jesus says that if it's in an improper path, and a path, a path that leads to evil, shedding of innocent blood, then it would be wise upon you disciples to cut it off. So what is Jesus here teaching us? He's teaching us that the most things, uh, that, that the most dangerous things about our bodies, uh, about us, is our bodies, because uh, essentially the wickedness of our heart. And I say dangerous, uh, the most dangerous, the most dangerous out here. Again, we could go to Matthew chapter seven and verse number twenty-one, and we, we we've talked about this, and we understand that 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 the hands, the eyes, and the feet are just a manifestation of an evil heart. And that's what Jesus says where He says, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. That that which is poured out of a man, that these things which we see in Mark chapter number 9 are a full expression of that which is running wild in the heart. So don't confuse um, what we're talking about here. We're talking about merely instruments of unrighteousness, Romans 6.13 says. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, for sin shall not have dominion over you, as Paul writes to Roman Christians. That there was a time when you gave your members, your hands, your eyes, your tongue, your feet, everything that you were to unrighteous deeds. You were a tool of the devil. Um, to accomplish that which is in opposition to God, but now reckon yourselves dead to sin because you are alive to Christ is the argument that he makes. Um, but that, that grace causes you to yield your members to righteousness. That when the grace of God enters into our hearts, um, Paul argues in more, of one, more than one place, I'm going to argue this morning, that you become fighters. Titus 2.11 and 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Paul is saying, Now that the grace of God is present in my life, I wage war against sin. I don't, I don't fight to have life. I fight because I am alive. That we wage war against sin in the Christian life. 
Because the opposite of embracing the sin for which Christ died to and I died to when I came to Christ is absolutely contrary to what God has made us and what God desires for us to be. So he says, wage war. When God in Jesus Christ changes your heart as you come to Him by faith and repentance, then you declare war upon the remaining corruption within John Owen says, that great Puritan, sin is always acting. It's always conceiving. It's always seducing and tempting. If then sin will always be acting, we must always be mortifying or killing. Or we are lost creatures, he says. And again, that must be emphasized here because Jesus is not saying fight for your life. Um, There's a real sense in which Jesus is saying here, if you don't fight, um, the ultimate end is hell. Because... The lack of fight characterizes the unbeliever, not the believer. Because if grace is present within you, you are compelled to make it to heaven. Thus you fight. God gives you not only saving grace, but persevering grace that causes you to take up arms and to go to battle with that which opposes not only you, but opposes Christ. It's like the body, you know, an immune system. God gives each of us this this ability within us to fight against foreign bodies. If contrasting blood were to enter in or infections, our body goes to battle against those things which come inside us that are foreign, that are against us, that oppose us, that are not made of the same substance. But not a dead man. With a dead man, as he lies there, any and every sort of disease and foreign enemy finds its home within and begins to necrose the tissue. But the idea is that dead men don't fight. Live men go to battle though. And they fight the war. They fight the battle. They fight the remaining corruption. So you see the message. And then uh, I think secondly, we see the motivation. The motivation. The motive. Um, that continual stumbling blocks keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. The bottom line is that sin is a killer. Every time it rises up to tempt you, Owen says, John Owen, um, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time sin rises up to tempt or to entice, if it had its own way, it would go against the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought and glance would end up in adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Sin has the utmost desire for destruction. Like the grave, it is never satisfied. It's a killer. It's a killer. It's a killer. So what does Jesus use as the motive itself? He uses hell as the motive. He says either cut it off or... Go to hell, into the fire which shall never be quenched. And he repeats that multiple times. The motive for you to cut it off as a believer, even as a believer in some sense, Jesus uses here um, hell as a motive for you to kill it. But the motive is eternal punishment. You know, and I know that that doesn't sound like the most tantalizing argument. And it's probably not the argument by nature that I would use. But it is the argument that our incarnate Christ uses with His disciples. For me, it seems like a hard sell on some days that if you were to hear a, a street preacher and I've been out there and I've, I've done that and I've, and, and I've preached in certain ways, you know, you would, 
Uh, some people would be very harsh on a person who stood up and preached this message, but it's the Lord's. You know? And you would think I, would, I, I, I care for these people, but at the same time, I probably wouldn't use that argument. Why? Because hell is a hard concept for most to grasp. Um, it's hard for the American mindset to grasp. It's even hard for possibly the modern Christian to grasp. And the argument often goes something like this, you know, how could a loving God send somebody to an eternal hell? I don't understand how a loving God could send somebody to an eternal hell. It just doesn't seem like that's justice. It just doesn't seem like the crime fits the, the punishment. I just don't understand. You know, and fundamentally, that's the issue. We just don't understand. We don't understand how a God who's on most days made in our own image could do what we wouldn't do because we wouldn't do it. You know? The idea is, is that we can't fathom in our own mind because we are finite man how God could do something that we wouldn't do. And we fall into the realm of, of, of the concept of, of the psalmist who says, um, who records God giving a rebuke to the people of God um, that you, were, you thought I was altogether like you. And that's rhetorical. <laughs> because I, I'm not, is what God is essentially saying. That the gap between God and man in our own minds is so minuscule and so little um, in our own understanding that we make God like ourselves. Thus, thus, we can never perceive God doing something that stands outside of our understanding, forgetting altogether that He is not like us. That His ways are not our ways and that His thoughts are not our thoughts and that a cursory reading of the Bible, we should begin to understand that very thing. We don't understand hell because we don't understand the majesty, the glory, the infinite worth and value of Christ. We don't recognize the infinite worth, value, and dignity of the Father. We have such a view, a skewed view of holiness and purity and glory and the character and the nature and the attributes and the love and the grace and the glory of an almighty God. And that's why we read 1 Chronicles chapter number 16 at the beginning of the um, at the beginning of the service. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David culminates in this glorious psalm as he writes to the to the people and sings to the people and sings to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to Him. Sing psalms to Him. Talk of all of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face forevermore. Remember His marvelous works which He has done. His wonders and His judgments of His mouth. O seed of Israel, His servant, Your children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is, our, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. Verse number 29. Give to the Lord the glory to His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Verse 30, tremble before Him all the earth. He goes on to say that He is a God not like any other gods. That if there were other gods in the world, they would not compare to this God. That He is not like us. His works are different. His majesty is glorious. His, his, his perfection is in, infinite. His love is ineffable. It cannot be exhausted. It cannot be written down. 
Men throughout the ages have spent centuries and millennia trying to tell you and me who God is and yet we still fall short even this day. And the best that I have to offer you will not give Him a, a half of an ounce of the glory that He deserves today. We cannot describe who He is or what He's done. But by His grace, we have revealed for us and the Spirit of God can take us into divine places to show us a little bit as we hide in the cleft of the rock of the glory, of the majesty of the Word of God that He can show us every once in a while um, a little bit of what that is and who that is. That the glory of God is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer goodness that is intrinsic within God and His attributes. Those things which are essential to make Him God um, he's, is, is, is His worth and value. That God is infinitely majestic in glory and holiness. That He is infinite in moral purity. And more than that, in His totality, He is holy. Everything about Him is holy. You know, we try to dissect Him and take Him apart and talk about His love and talk about His grace and talk about this and that. Um, but there's an impossibility to even accomplish that without talking to him, uh, talking about Him in reference to His holiness. Why? Because His love is holy. His justice is holy. His righteousness is holy. I understand the, the necessity of systematic theology and breaking apart God so our finite minds can kind of grasp a little bit of what that is. But to take apart God into these pieces... Um, theologians and Christians in days past have said um, that the, the, there's, there's a, you end up often getting into heresy as you emphasize one thing more than another. He's simply God. He's not a clock with cogs and a wheel with this part and that part. He is simply God. And everything about Him makes Him Him. And it's all equally, uh, it's, it's, all, it's all simple. If you could boil it down to this one element, it's simply God. He's not made up of a hundred different things. That make Him God. He's God. And thus He does those hundred different things. That He's a God who is infinitely just as well. And has utter delight in righteousness. That He's unsearchable, Paul says. And that His ways are past finding out. And the reason that we can't grasp it is because He can't be grasped. He's like the Spirit of God. He's, he's like the wind. He comes where He desires and He goes where He wants. And who can grab Him? That God can't be boiled down to five basic principles or ten attributes that define who He is. You know, and we don't understand hell because we don't understand the gravity and the weight of God. We don't understand hell because we don't understand the gravity and the weight of our own sin in relationship to this majestic, infinite God. We don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We take our thoughts and our sins so lightly the things we say, the things we do, we just discount them. You know, I know I shouldn't have said that, but they really had it coming. I know I shouldn't have done that, but they, do, they, they, they needed it to teach them a lesson. Yet when Jesus says in Matthew 12 that you will be judged according to every idle word or every deed that comes out of your mouth and your hands. Now listen, I'm 100% wholesale convinced of the doctrine of total depravity. One of the dangers that we have within this movement is that we just cast aside any sin and we become lawless because we're in Christ or we fall into this realm where we're just sinners and that's what we do. Thus, we accept the fact that we're just sinners. We compare ourselves with ourselves and we think, man, that's not too bad. I mean, look what Peter did last week. He rebuked Jesus. I'm not quite that bad. Maybe that makes me somewhat greater. 
We do it with our kids. They sin and we post it on Facebook and we just say boys will be boys and girls will be girls and we make light of it and we cast it off and we laugh about it just because they're naturally obstinate or this or that. Listen, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Satan desires. To deceive you into thinking that little white lies are nothing but little white lies. And that a quick glance, man, is, is not the same as... I mean, I'm not going out committing adultery in the world. Or that a fist on a desk out of hatred for our brother is justified because they're bigger sinners than we are. All while Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, says that you just committed soul murder, brother. That you just committed adultery against your wife. That you just lied against a person, sinned against them and yourself and against an almighty God. You know, I know it's after the fall and that we're ravaged by sin and that theoretically every sin that you commit, um, you know, doesn't add... Or you don't think that it adds this or it adds that to, to, to much of anything because that's your nature and that's what you do. Uh, but, the, but, but let me put it like this. Theoretically, every sin that we commit, if God gave the opportunity, would have contained within it the possibility of sending not only yourselves, but if God would covenant with you an entire humanity into a state of curse and unbelief such that the only just response would be the wrath of God for all eternity. One of the greatest lies is that a little white lie is just a little white lie and that boys will be boys and that girls will be girls when each sin has contained within it total death and destruction and given the right environment, that is exactly what it would do. Just as Owen said, let me read him again, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it had its own way, it would go to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought and glance would end up in adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, he says. Sin has the utmost desire for our destruction. Like the grave, it is never satisfying. Spurgeon quarreled with that in his day. He said when men talk about a little hell, it's because they believe they only have a little sin. And subject to that, a little Savior. And we'll get to that. Because what we need to understand that is our doctrine of hell and our doctrine of sin, um, it only depreciates what Christ has done upon the cross. And it only appreciates the worth and the value of exactly what He did to, to take the eternal wrath of God as, he's, as, he's, as he, he hangs there upon the tree, subjects Himself to 33 years of, 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 of suffering as He enters into to us in every point like we are. And He takes upon Himself there the cross, that infinite, eternal wrath and hell of God that you and I so deserve. And if it's a little sin, then you have a little Savior. And it's an affront to God to question the doctrine of hell and have a small doctrine of the gravity and the weight of sin. And it begins and is born out of a little view and a low view of the majesty, the glory, the infinite beauty, worth, and value of God Himself. That we need to, as believers understand that our sin is huge and it carries with it no restraint if, if God would let it go. And that it's huge not only because of the natural destruction that it causes before our eyes. You know, sometimes we argue, and I've heard sermons, and I've probably preached them too, of just the, 
the, the consequences of sin. You know, it's like trying to argue somebody uh, to quit smoking and they put up that guy with the trach and the little uh, voice box, you know. Like, don't smoke because this is what will happen. Oftentimes we do that with sin and we say that it's morally corruptive. It's relationally corrosive. It, it, it destroys marriages. It rips apart families. Children are damaged. It destroys the body. And we want to, we want to take a picture and post it up here on a PowerPoint and say, look what it does. And like, that's true. I get it. But more grievous than that is that, that it transgresses and offends not two tablets of stone, but a holy God. A God who is infinitely wise and holy and just and, and love. Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes to Rome. Because there's people there that are just spitting in the grace of God, no doubt. Like us on many days. Verse 1, he says, Therefore you are excusable, O man. He just lays them without excuse. Because they know there's a God. Who are you? Whoever you are a judge, for in whatever you judge, another, will uh, another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. Do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, yet you do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What you picture are these people who are walking their own way saying sin's just sin and, and just hypocrisy upon another person laying stumbling blocks before their brethren. And he says, don't you know, you know that you are, you are you're, you're an affront to the mercy of God? Like He extends patience to you every single day. And every single day that you don't recognize the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the mercy, and the grace of Christ on your behalf, every single day you store up wrath. Every day you spurn His kindness. Think about it. Think about how angry maybe you get sometimes on your children. Oftentimes you, 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 uh, when consequences come, you extend them grace and mercy and this and that, and they continue in on their own sin. And how righteously angry you may feel. Imagine... You know, an entire world of billions of people who carry on every single day not recognizing the grace and the glory, the majesty and the mercy of Christ. And they live their lives not in neutrality, but in total rebellion towards Him. That the magnitude of sin is great because it's measured not in proportion to us, but in proportion to the dignity of the one offended. And you know that, right? Like the magnitude of sin or an action is in proportion to the dignity of the one offended. Think about it. Y'all have little boys, I have little boys. Um, they go out, four, five, six years old, find a worm, just rip them in half. You know? That's what boys do. Probably not the best idea, so you teach them. Like, that's not, you know, any cruel to animals. Um, but it's not a great offense. But a little boy takes a cat, tries to put him in a wood burning stove or crush his head with a stone. You're a little more offense there. It's a little graver, right? It's a lot graver, you know? We respect animals. Why? Because an animal is different than an insect, a worm. Imagine that little boy takes another child, punches him in the face, picks up a rock, tries to smash his head in. Now he's committed a grave sin. And that is why the charges are different for a person who burns down an anthill versus a person who burns down a, 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 a police station, you know? 
Because there's image bearers of God stamped upon them. Thus the, 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 the sin is measured in proportion to the dignity of the one who was the offended. And because we don't understand the majesty of God nor the enormity of our sin, we don't understand the severity of the punishment. You know? Because if I sinned against you and you sinned against me, it wouldn't deserve eternal punishment, would it? Because we're equals. But um, in one of the letters of Samuel, of Samuel Eli says this. He, he was a man who, you know, he got a lot of things wrong, but he got, I think he got this right. He says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the, and the, and the thought is, is that if, the, if, if a man sins against a man, restoration and reconciliation can happen. You can do that. You can accomplish that. But he says if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? The, the, the rhetorical question is no one. No one can take away what you've just done to a holy God. There's no man, there's no pulpit, there's no priest, uh, uh, there's not enough confession, there's not a father, there's not a mother, there's not a child, there's not a brother, there's not a civil authority, a magistrate, a king, and, uh, and the highest in all the world who's, who, is, who is merely a man and equal to you in, in substance and stature that could ever erase what you've done to a holy God. That when we talk about hell, we talk about one in whom, in whom the, 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 the infinite majesty of God has been offended that the punishment does fit the crime. Because we're not talking about equals, we're talking about a God who is majestically, gloriously, infinitely more just and holy and pure and loving and gracious than any one of us. Because of His infinite majesty, because of His infinite mercy, because of His infinite grace, because of His utter perfection, and because of the fact that we spurn it each and every and single day with our hands, with our eyes, with our feet, with our mouths, and with our hearts. Um, eternal wrath is more than appropriate because of the one whom was offended. Luther says, since God was a just God, we must love and praise His justice and thus rejoice in God even when He, he miserably destroys the wicked in body and soul. For in all this, His high and inexpressible justice shines forth so that even hell, no less than heaven, is full of God. That what will make heaven for the redeemed glorious will also, in some sense, make hell for the lost. Eternal punishment. And that is the presence of God. The presence of God in heaven with Christ and all of His mercy. And the presence of God in hell without any of it. And that what will make heaven for the redeemed will make hell for the lost. God Himself. Is God there in some sense? Yes and the fullness of His justice. Thus He says church, thus He says disciples, thus He says Peter, James, and John. That's why it's better. It would have been better if you had tied a millstone around your neck and cast it in. Because that's what you're doing to your brother. That's where you're going with that. It's not a boys will be boys and they will argue and they'll battle against who's the greatest. You're laying stumbling blocks before your brother. And if that sin takes root in his heart, it'll take him to the depths of the ocean. It'll negross his inside. It'll eat. It's soul murder. It's adultery. You don't know what you're doing to your wife. I'm just looking. You don't have a clue. We don't have a clue the ramifications of our sins. 
It's like a little seed that just branches out and reaches into the depths and grabs everything that it can. Not only is it an offense to you, an offense to Him, but it's an offense to a holy God who made us in utter innocence and perfection and placed His image upon us and requires greater of us. Why? Because He's the authority over us and He deserves us and we are to be instruments of His righteousness. Thus He says, if you understand that man, if you understand that woman, uh, if, if, if anything offends you or causes your brother to stumble, like it's better to cut it off. Cut it off. Cut it off. Because it's better to, have, to, to go to exit this life without it than to enter into Gehenna, to hell. In the days of wicked King Ahaz and Manasseh, that's what this word means. It comes from the original word Gehenna. It's the most vivid picture of, um, of hell that we have, and it's most frequently used by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, hell is only mentioned 12 times, I think, in the New Testament. 11 of those are by Jesus. And he describes it like this. There was a valley outside of Jerusalem um, that there was apostate Jews would offer up child sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, in the days of King Josiah, God sent a revival and a reprieve, and Josiah ended all that. He said, we're done with it. They turned it into a, a garbage dump where they would take refuse and, and even uh, soldiers who were excommunicated and, and sentenced to death. They would throw the bodies on there. And it was, a, it was a place that constantly burned. No one would desire to go there. The stench was horrible. Um, and that's where the, the vivid picturing in this passage comes from as Jesus recounts that that's the place where there's gnashing and weeping, or gnashing of teeth and, uh, teeth and there's weeping. And um, the, the fire is never quenched and it's the worm never dies um, is the idea. The worm never dies because the worm never runs out of food. The the fire never goes out because the fuel is always there. And it's with the souls of the unrighteous is what the, the text says. That it was a cursed place, not only because of what it was in Ahab's day, but also what it had become to be. And in Christ's day, it had become the most vivid, descriptive word of hell. Jesus says it's better to pluck your eye out than to spend all eternity in a place like that. It's a place our Lord tells us where the fire is never quenched and never goes out. You say, man, that's a horrible thought. I know. That's why this is not my favorite sermon to preach. Why would you take my mind there? Because Christ thought it worthy. And that's a reality before us. There's a large part of me that's, yeah, just deters from this. I love preaching on Christ and Him crucified. Look to Him. Look to His death. Look to His burial. Look to His resurrection. Look to His ascension. Look to His continued work as the high priest. There's a sense in which, at the same time, that's exactly why hell must be preached. Because in all of its agony and pain and anguish and screaming and grinding of teeth and darkness, I am convinced that the most terrifying aspect of hell for the believer and that which should cause us to cut things off and to persevere um, by His grace, that grace that is born in us, um, is the fact that, that, that it, it, the worst part about it is not the fact of all those things, but I'm convinced the most terrifying aspect of hell for the believer is that Christ in His love and all of His grace and all of His mercy will not be experienced in the smallest, most minute amount, as long as you're there. And that if you're a child of God this morning, then I trust that there is nothing sweeter to you 
and to your soul than the love of God shed abroad in your heart. Thus it should startle you to know that His loving embrace is not there. That Christ is the Lamb of God is not there. That Christ is the ultimate sacrifice is, is not there. But Christ is the great judge is. Thus He tells us to cut it off and to cast it out. And surely you know that Christ is not actually teaching for you to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. Boys and girls, take that home with you, okay? He's not telling you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. It's vivid imagery and illustration that He uses to teach you what you must do with your sin. People throughout history under the banner of this verse have done just that. Don't do that. Because the problem's not out here, boys and girls. It's not with your hands. It's not with your feet. It's not with your eyes. It's with your hearts. It's with us on the inside that manifests on the outside. Thus Jesus is teaching that radical amputation and violent mortification of sin is the mark of a child of God. I want to reemphasize that. Because what I'm saying, not saying up here today is preaching to believers and saying you know, um, that you're going to hell, that you have the risk of, of losing your life in Christ. Um, I'm of the opinion of biblical uh, precedent laid before me that that is not the case, that once Jesus Christ takes upon your hold of your life, that you are eternally secure in Him. And the way that He does that is He puts a perseverance and a warfare and a, and a desire to fight in your heart um, such that He even uses these threats to, to teach you and to push you on towards Christ. That if you know that um, Christ is not there and that your life outside of Him will ultimately culminate in that, then you will pursue Him in whatever it takes to take hold of that eternal life. That, As the, Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, um, without holiness you, you will no wise see the Lord. Thus holiness is, is necessary, but it's not our holiness. It's Christ's holiness in us as He works through us and produces um, the fruit of godliness. Thus, whatever it is in your life that detracts you from Him, that removes you from communion with Him and defiles your conscience and defiles your heart and lays stumbling blocks before your brother, I beg you and implore you on the, on the, on the, on the command of Christ to cut that thing off. It is not worth it. It is not worth it. That's the idea. It is to, the, the task is to identify the enemies of your soul. That those that affect the eyes, those that affect the hands, those that affect the feet, and then kill it. That the great question for you and I today is, do you have sin in your life? Do you have things in your life that cause you to stumble? And that's a rhetorical question. Because I'm assuming that if you're a Christian, then you do. It worries me when Christians say they don't. As Matthew Henry said, part with sin or part with Christ and a good conscience. You say, I'm not exactly sure what that means yet. Or, or inevitably, maybe your mind goes to the premier illustration of that in our day. You know, the lust of men. Men, um, you know, if, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. You know, it's better that you go to um, heaven without a phone or a computer than it is for you to go to hell with it. And there's a, there's a danger of you sitting there and saying, I don't struggle with that, I'm good. Because that seems where this passage always goes. This passage is for you as well. It's for all of you. You know? That if, you know, that if your computer, if your phone, men, women, if your phone causes you to gossip, causes you to do this or that, it would be better if you live the rest of this life without it than go to hell characterized by 
a liar, a gossip, this or that. That whatever God requires of you should be enough for you to submit to it because of the grace that He's extended to you. I love Spurgeon. He says, When the prophet Elijah had received the answer to prayer and the fire from heaven had consumed the sacrifice in the presence of all the people, he called upon the assembly, the assembled Israelites to take the priest to Baal and sternly cried, Let no one of them escape. He took them all down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So must it be with our sins. They're all doomed. Not one of them must be preserved. Our darling sin must die. Spare it not for much, much crying. Strike though it be as dear as Isaac. Get this. Strike for God struck at sin when it was even laid upon His own Son. With stern unflinching purpose you must condemn to death that which was once the idol of your heart. Amen. But Spurgeon doesn't end there. He goes on to say, do you ask how you are to accomplish this? Jesus, he says, will be your power. You have grace to overcome sin given you in the covenant of grace. You have strength to win the victory in the crusade against inward lusts because Christ has promised to be with you even unto the end. If you would triumph over darkness, set yourself in the presence of the Son of Righteousness. There is no place so well adapted for the discovery of sin and its recovery from power and guilt as the immediate presence of God. And then He abhorred Himself and repented in dust and ashes. The fine gold of the Christian is oft becoming dim. We need the sacred fire to consume the dross. Let us fly to our God. That when we get together and I preach a sobering message upon sin this morning, you may walk away thinking, man, I am doomed. Or you may walk away thinking, I'm going to go home and I'm going to throw my computer out. I'm going to put uh, things upon my phone and then next week it's exactly the same and you've been pulled back in. This is not a fight of your own strength. Listen, the only way that a person could cut this thing off is by the Spirit of God. You know, positively. You are not uh, negatively, you are to cut those things off, but positively, you are to strive to grow in grace. That you are to use the means that God has provided to fan the flames and the love of Christ in your life. Paul writes, not only to take off the old man, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You are to pray that the love of Christ would so increase in your life and in your love, that your love for sin would just shrivel on the vine. You are to pray that God would make obedience to Christ so delightful. That the delightfulness of sin fades as a bad memory instead of the great pursuit of your day. Because as the love of Christ abounds, there will be without a doubt a hatred of sin in your life. Listen, cutting off sin and casting it away will not save your soul today. It will not make you a believer. It might make you a monk or a, a nun, but it will never save you. Once again, you, you fight the fight of faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not to be saved, but because Christ has so captivated your heart with His infinite majesty, worth, glory, and power that you recognize the gravity of your sin and what that does in your own life and in the life of others and, 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 and ultimately to an infinite holy God. Thus, you cling to Christ and you run to Him as your only refuge. That without the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8 says, you will never mortify the deeds of the flesh. They will never die. That some of you are laboring hard against your sin today and you're laboring in your own strength and that's why you're exhausted. That's why you want to lay down the sword. That's why you want to quit. That's why you want to throw in the towel. That's why you don't want to serve. That's why you don't want to do this and that. And Jesus Christ commands you today by the power of the Spirit to utilize the Word in your own life that He may overwhelm you with the truth of His grace 
and the power of the Spirit that, um, that you can put this thing to death. And I can tell you a personal experience, only by the grace of God, that this is God's desire and will, but it's also accomplishable in your life. In your life. That Paul cries, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That our hope is, is only in dependence upon Christ and hope in God's Son. That's why you hack away. That's why you gouge out your eyes. That's why you put sin to death. The text is not teaching us what to do to be saved, but the kind of people that are saved, what they do. And that we are to pursue heaven. And to do that is to pursue Christ. To abandon ourselves. Listen, this isn't just... Baptists aren't the only ones going to heaven. Reformed aren't the only ones going to heaven. The only kind of person that will ever get to heaven is that kind that pursues Christ through holiness because of what Christ has accomplished on His behalf. So today, if you are by grace a child of God, then you're a fighter and compelled to battle your sin by utter dependence upon the Spirit and His Word because you both love your Savior because of the love that He has for you in Christ and also because you take Him serious when He says those that don't um, will not go to heaven but will enter into hell with all their, their members. So I ask you, are you fighting? If there's no fight in you, you're a dead man. There's no desire in you. There is no life in you. Today, are you warring against the flesh? You say, well, I, you, know, you didn't talk about my sin. How do I engage that? I don't know because I don't know your sin. I know you need to cut it off. And if that's the case, come to us. Let us help you. Let us help you pursue Christ. Let's go together. Let's run to the cross. Let's bend the knee. Let's bow beside each other and pray that the Lord would give you freedom over that because it's, 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 it's not just a little white lie. It's not just boys will be boys and girls will be girls. It's not. Like it's huge. It's grave. It's sobering. And it needs to be killed. And on the other side of that is love and glory and grace and fruit of the Spirit that will culminate in your life by God's grace and His Spirit um, that will overwhelm you such that you'll ever wonder why you engaged in the pleasures of sin at all um, when I take so much pleasure in Christ now. Like you're, you're depriving yourself of the presence of God by engaging in those things. And the text goes on in Mark chapter 9, and verse 49 and 50. Um, to teach us, and I'm going to get to that next week, that through it, God will be faithful. He will be more than faithful. That that salted with fire, I think, speaks of the covenant that God makes with His people. And it speaks of the faithfulness of God to those whom covenant with Him. That He does not lose one. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will walk all along the way and He will empower you by His grace to overcome these things. The question for you today is, um, do you desire that? Are you alive? Are you at warfare? And are you gaining the victory because Christ has so empowered you by His Spirit? If not, I would ask you today to, to repent and believe. To look to Christ and live. To turn to Him. And if that's you today and there's no fight in you, you're overwhelmed with your sin and Christ is calling to you to come unto Him, I beg you today to turn to Christ, to repent and believe and trust um, that He is a sufficient Savior to care for your sin. Man, the grace of God, 
Imagine all of hell, if that be appropriate, and I think it is, the Christ that took all of that upon the cross, the infinite wrath of God on our behalf. Oh, the grace. Oh, the mercy. Oh, the love. Kind of changes how deep the Father's love now, doesn't it? When you think about that, which you deserved rightfully, justly, and a God so apart from you and other than would span the gap with His only Son and take that which we infinitely deserve. It magne- Hell magnifies the cross. It doesn't depreciate it. It adds to God's character nature. It doesn't take away from it. At the same time, as uh, Robert Murray McShane, great Christian of days past, walking with one of his men, had a conversation. He said he preached on hell. And the finality of the conversation was, he looked at him and said, son, did you preach it with tears? Did you preach it with tears? We glory in what God can do. and We understand His justice. But at the same time, if you're here today without Christ, I beg you to come to Him. On behalf of His mercy and grace, we implore you to run to Christ today. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious nature of the the cross. What a sobering thought as we think about the eternal nature, Father. We have eternity before us. Even this week as we lay family member to rest, Lord, we're reminded that they stand before God today. And that their bed has been made, the seed has been sown, the field has been planted, and their destiny has been determined. So we pray for mercy. We pray that that's what it is. We pray that they found you in time. Father, as you drew them to them, to yourself. Father, that often teaches us to evaluate our own lives in light of eternity. God, it just brings before us the frailty and the fragility of the life, the value of a day, and the measure of a sin. Lord, would you just use this in our lives to make us more like your son? God, would it cause us to persevere on clinging to Christ and to heaven, laying aside any weight, Father, that may be set us along the way, realizing, Father, that the gravity of it is great because it, it, um, it lays men to waste, but it also offends a holy God. Father, may we not offend Thee this day. Father, but we recognize that in ultimately in our offense, because we will sin because of our fallen nature that battles with the Spirit in us, that ultimately You will preserve us, but we will sin, but we take refuge in Christ, knowing that, um, it is not, that we are not slaves to it and that it is not our master anymore. Father, that um, we have an advocate with You and it's Jesus Christ the righteous. <laughs> and we have an ever uh, interceding spirit. And we, when we don't even know how to pray, praise for us. So, Father, would you in some way, I don't know how, uh, because I don't know how to do it, but would you use, Father, the text before us to bring men to yourself, to aid men to cut off and sin in their lives, 
but also to just give us a deeper and greater love for you, um, Father, as a result of this reality that lies before us. We have to deal with it. So help us to deal with it, Father, faithfully in our own hearts. And may it provoke us to bow the knee to you today and worship, even though we don't understand all these things. We don't seek to understand them, Father, but we do seek to trust you. So we trust you with it today, Father, and pray that it magnifies Christ in some glorious way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can